Jeff and Francis have the personality of a roof shingle. Fortunately for us, their guests make them slightly tolerable if they are on mute. This is Above the Fold and Below Your Expectations. Welcome everybody to Above the Fold. Today we are joined by Coolapartners.com co-founder, Carmen Perry. Carmen, thanks for joining us today. Look, Jeff, it's a pleasure to be here. Good to be chatting with you. Carmen, you've got a great radio voice. Were you in radio before? No, you know, I just uh, I just try to bring it out for these guest appearances like this. You know, it's better. I have a face for radio as well, in case you're curious. <laughs> You've got this good, like this deep Ken Burns, deep bass to it. I feel like you should be narrating some 1800s baseball or something. I feel maybe I, I feel like I should now be sitting here smoking full time for the rest of the hour or whatever. That <laughs> yeah, kind of like that uh, James Lipton behind the actor's studio. It's like you should be sitting in a in a like a deep leather chair in a in a smoking lounge or something, interviewing important people, and not talking to me. Uh, well, look, you know, maybe maybe I can continue chatting with you, but uh, add the smoking, and we can kind of get halfway there. I'll let you know if that happens at any point. Right? What What are you smoking? Um, well, you know, this is Canada, so it, <laughs> uh, that it, it's, I guess that would be questionable. It's medicinal, man. Yeah, I, I won't even ask you any further. I know. Well, you're a co-founder. You can do whatever you want, right? That's <laughs> what uh, <laughs> so people seem to think, at least. Uh, they might be right on that. I don't know. <laughs> so, Carmen, you, uh, you're a co-founder of Kula Partners. What do you guys do? We're an agency focused on helping manufacturers digitally transform their marketing and sales functions. So um, that's kind of the broadest definition of what we do. An agency made for manufacturers, in other words. That's you. I've never run into that before. How'd you get into that? Um, Well, you know, how do you get into the misspent world of being an agency owner? Um, It's probably a great question. I uh, um. I, guess, well, I mean, more like specifically for manufacturers. That's yeah. Well, we we were uh, uh, we were kind of a generalist agency with a focus on um, uh, more uh, inbound marketing in its early days and things of that sort. And over time, we we really found that we um, the the clients that we worked with that were manufacturers, we could really you know we felt that we really could move the needle for them in some pretty unique ways, and we could see some patterns in how we were helping them. Um, so we just uh, decided as an agency to kind of, uh, as y- y'all say in America, niche down uh, into a vertical, or we might say niche. Down. Is that what we, <laughs> is that what we say? <laughs> niche um, down. <laughs> we say a lot of things. I haven't used yeah, that one yet. Yeah. That's well, new so, to me. Yeah, so we decided to kind of um, to just kind of narrow our focus. Uh, there's a variety of reasons that I would suggest agency owners may look at a vertical focus. Uh, we could talk about that from a strategy perspective, but that's probably not that useful to your listeners. So, uh, no, we, we could probably dive into that a little bit too, but, um, that, that is, that is interesting that you did niche down. Um, I mean, is there, is there a benefit to that? Like if if I'm going to go start a marketing agency tomorrow and I just want to say, Hey, I'm going to start an inbound marketing agency. Would you suggest that I do that? Just go general or would I just pick one specific niche? Like, all right, what, what are the most obvious niches? where our people are behind in marketing. I mean, real estate, right? Legal is atrocious. Um, education's pretty bad too. Like, did you just look at this and say this particular niche is way, way behind? Um, well, we, we looked at a combination of things. I mean, I think, I think you look at market opportunity in combination with your firm's expertise and kind of track record. And you try to find a bit of an intersection there as you're trying to work through, um, um, uh, selecting a, a becoming more focused. Now that could have been a, a horizontal or vertical positioning, frankly. Um, but I think if you were to look at um, a list of the all, all of the pluses that come with a vertical positioning, um, uh, and then look at the pluses of a horizontal one. I mean, the the pluses are so much stronger, if you will, with the vertical positioning. I think that the if you can get there as an agency, uh, I feel, uh, and I felt at the time, and I continue to feel, that it's the, it's the best thing you can do. It, it helps you, uh, as an agency, the, the more, um, in some ways, homogenous your client base is, um, uh, the more focused that client base is. It allows you to see uh, deeper patterns in the challenges that you're being presented and you can find better, more unique uh, and, and more highly leveraged ways of, of solving those problems. And um, uh, beyond that, as an ag- for an agency uh, seeking to find new clients, 
a vertical focus uh, often makes um, uh, client acquisition, targeting, et cetera, uh, easier. So tell me about a client that you worked with that makes you super happy, like uh, a story where you worked with them beginning to end that you're super proud of. What did that look like? Man, that forces me to like pick one. Yeah, That's, pick one. Pick pick your favorite pick, kid. Like, why don't I pick Do it right actually, here oddly, take this a bit of a tangent away from the manufacturing focus and just pick a client that we've worked with for a long time um, and that we've kind of retained uh, even – uh, as we've moved to a, to a focus on manufacturing. So they're one of our few kind of off-vertical clients, if you will. But they sell something really fun, which is wine. So that's why it's nice to talk about. So uh, if you go to bishopseller.com, uh, you'll find the client. Uh, they're a wine store uh, that uh, operates a pretty in a pretty interestingly regulated market uh, in this very odd little part of Canada. Um, but uh, they... Really, because of their their uh, limited from a regulatory standpoint in terms of how they, they can just expand uh, retail locations, um, uh, but they can uh, but they are not necessarily limited in terms of what they can do digitally. So they're very advanced in terms of um, the online presence, the deep integration between um, uh, the experience in store at retail and what happens online. Um, so, uh, I think it's a fun client to work with and, uh, it's a fun product to sell and been able to take this small little wine store and move them to a multi-million dollar e com business, um, uh, which there are an awful lot of midsize and larger, uh, manufacturers that, uh, dream of having a multi-million dollar e com presence, so. So what was it about this particular client that really fired you up? Is it the product? Are you a huge wine fan or like Well, what is, no, admittedly, I do like wine really and they sell spirits uh, with a focus on uh, some really nice uh, American rye, and that also captivates my interest, Jeff. I don't mind saying. I won't judge you for saying what kind of what kind of uh, rye spirits do you do you enjoy? Uh, actually, I would say Rittenhouse would be my preferred uh, rye of choice these days in, uh, in all fashion. We haven't had a good whiskey chat on this podcast in at least 10 episodes. Uh, let me. What do you think of Templeton rye? Give me your thoughts on that. I think it's fine. fine. Oh, all right. All right. I feel like I just got called out there in my, my lack no, of... It's, it's perfectly acceptable. There's nothing wrong with it. I don't have <laughs> a strong opinion about it. Um, do are, do people are are they often strongly opinionated about Templeton? Oh, no, I don't think so. It's just it's uh, it's my go to. It's a, it's like a good solid rye. I like the straightforward spiciness of Rittenhouse. The overproof uh, hundred the the, the hundred proof uh, Rittenhouse is lovely. Um, Rittenhouse, okay. Uh, but anyway, the uh, so but I think what's really good about that client, to be honest, is the um, and I'm not trying to, to pump up anybody's tires here, but they're. Um, the, the president who heads the the marketing effort there is just um, um, you know very much interested in what's next and um, and it, you know it has a real appetite for um, m- moving things forward and not not being I don't know is not particularly conservative um, and and I think that that uh, has shown them what they've been able to do. That is so important with work. I worked with clients for many years before coming in house finally. And it is like beyond words. When you've got a client that is actually open to ideas and really progressive, they're not fighting you and you're not pulling teeth and you can actually come up with really big ideas and they're open and receptive to them, that that makes all the difference in the world as an agency. Mm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, look, and and it leads to great successes client side too. Like we have one uh, initiative. Um, uh, that one initiative alone will, if it doesn't bring in a, a million this year, it will be very close. It's a it's a weekly promotion that they do, um, and, and I think uh, our agency fees for coming up with the idea was ten thousand um, bucks. So. Uh, you know, um, that's people like to talk about marketing ROI. <laughs> so, you know, millions of dollars mm. in annual sales, ten thousand dollars in spend. It's a pretty and good I deal. Think that, that only kind of those those kind of nice, charming little ideas kind of only come in the in the 
an environment of uh, positive collaboration with a client and like you say, openness to new ideas. And So we've got, uh, you're out there in Canada smoking an unknown substance, drinking rye and working with wine clients. You're in pretty good shape out there. Well, now look, I, I've only admitted to a few of them, <laughs> okay. but uh, yes, yes, uh, we, we do well. <laughs> don't worry. We don't let anything out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is, it's not like this is being recorded and transmitted for worldwide listening at all. Nah, nah, none of that. Um, let, let me segue real quick because yeah, you are. Uh, this isn't a popular podcast, Jeff. Otherwise, we'd be screwed. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, if we actually had listeners, you'd be in trouble. If you had any, if anybody listened to this and wanted to become yeah. a client, you'd, you'd, be in, yeah. you'd be in big trouble. But fortunately, you're only talking to my mom, my grandmother, and uh, a few other very close friends that pretend to work. <laughs> so uh, you, should be, you should be totally fine. Don't worry about it. <laughs> exactly. Let me segue really quickly because you also run a podcast and you are actually the third podcast host that I've hosted on this podcast in the last three recordings that I've had. Uh, how's that going for you? Yeah. Um, uh, interestingly, I would say in some ways, the benefits of a vertical positioning as an agency are also some of the benefits of uh, hosting a podcast. And uh, uh, what we found is that, frankly, there just wasn't a lot of uh, information out there targeted towards manufacturing marketers and some of the unique challenges that they face. Nobody's really telling their stories. So mm-hmm. we, I thought we would create this podcast called The Cooler Ring, um, where we just simply highlight the um, uh, digital transformations underway at, at, at manufacturers, kind of tell the uh, something unique about what's happening at uh, um, uh, in the world of manufacturing marketing from the perspective of somebody that's in the trenches. And you know, so what is that? How has that been? Well, you know, I think I, we've been over a year into that, and I think you know the the reception has been pretty well uh, decent. You know, I, I've been happy with. Uh, with our, our, our listenership thus far, um, to the extent that I kind of focus or think about that particularly much. But then uh, beyond that, um, I, I really liked what it's uh, the, the conversation that it's enabled us to have as uh, agency principals, because my, my uh, business partner and I are the co-hosts of the podcast. And um, frankly, we can interview a lot more podcast guests than we can bring on new clients. You know, you just have a certain capacity every year for new clients. Um, but you can almost interview an unlimited number of people. Yeah. Um, and uh, so you can sense those patterns, as we talked about before, the same thing that comes with um, vertical positioning. And one of the benefits, uh, you know, it also comes with the podcast is you can actually uh, begin to um, – to, to, to see the trends and patterns within that uh, that target client base and uh, react accordingly. Not to mention, it's just fun. You know, you just sit around and you're, you're creating content. It's almost like cheap content. You're cheating at this. You're just sitting here talking, but you're actually creating content that people are going to presumably listen to. Hi, Grandma. And at the same time, um, you do get to network a little bit. You know, I'm sure you've, you've interviewed a few podcast hosts that have maybe introduce you to other podcasts, uh, open up opportunities to create content with them or their brand and things like that. Right. Yeah, absolutely. It has a, has a nice effect that way. And I, I do, I tend to agree with you. It's kind of easy content to create in some way. Now, not everybody finds it that way. Um, I, I suppose there are lots of people out there that find writing blogs for a to be a very easy thing for others. It's like pulling teeth. So it's, you know, part of the uh, content creation magic is finding a format that kind of suits your uh, uh, personal style in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, sure, that makes sense. Uh, yeah, for for me, sitting down to write a blog post could take me months just because I'm going to be a perfectionist. Whereas if I just hop on the phone, just chat, go through a couple topics, and then boom. So it might just be like an easier medium for me to get through stuff. So there is something about the written uh, format that seems like you're more demanding of yourself uh, yeah you uh you let perfect get in the way of good and that sucks a lot of time get perfect get in the way perfect gets in the way of good i think that pretty much yeah you could write that on my tombstone i think that would be pretty well defined <laughs> character description <laughs> all right let me segue here because we're going to talk a little bit about the marketing funnel. And we've discussed that before on this podcast. And really, the extent of these discussions are just kind of raging out on it, saying that we hate it. 
um, looking at other people's ideas and deciding that we generally don't like those either. Uh, what we really haven't done is analyze this in an intelligent way that didn't go beyond just um, venting about things that we don't like. So let's talk about that a little bit today because I know you've got a lot to say on that. So talk to me about what your impressions were. Like what what got you fired up about this marketing funnel that seems to break market marketing models and, and give people all kinds of issues with uh, trying to figure out how to, how to make it work with their organization. What, what got you fired up about this? Yeah. Uh, look, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe it, it probably all starts in some way with, I, I have a bit of an obsession with um, framing in some way. So like I, you know, anybody that's ever worked with me, but has heard me say the person that frames the debate wins the debate. Um, uh, so it's just kind of this, uh, obsessive thing. I think too much about probably, and, and it kind of extends, well, I think it was in, it was Churchill, uh, in 1943, I think, in the house of commons that, that you know, it talked about our buildings. Um, you know, first we, we shape our buildings and afterwards they shape us. Um, in some ways, I think that the frameworks or constructs that we use in our work have the same, um, um, uh, impacts and, and there's almost no kind of, if you will, model that's um, uh, more widely used in marketing these days and kind of the current uh, state of affairs. Really, the funnel is the is almost the predominant model when we talk about kind of lead capture, nurturing, in some ways transitioning a. a a lead into a sales opportunity, et cetera, and that whole process is tend to be tends to be viewed through the lens of a funnel. So, you know, just kind of one day I was thinking about what does that do? Like, what are kind of some of the inherent um, things that leads us to believe that might not necessarily be true? And it wasn't really um, resonating with the manufacturers that I often work with. Can I and, can I pause know. you just for one second? I I just want to ask a question before we go in any further. I'm taking a drink from a fire hydrant, Jeff. I can appreciate it. I need to stop every once in a while. <laughs> ah, I thought I was the only person who used that phrase. Damn it. Well, anyways. Um, as far as the funnel is concerned, I mean, how did we actually land on the shape of the funnel and assume that that was right? Is it just something that fits well in our in our heads? Is it something that was just really palatable? How did that happen? You know, man, I didn't go do the research on what actually started the funnel. <laughs> I mean, I didn't think that was required homework for this show. Yeah, yeah, of course it was required homework. <laughs> well, yeah. All right, so let me let me just call you out on the fly. Why, why do you think this popularized it more recently? I guess we know that, and that's kind of that. It, it is that inbound um, uh, marketing methodology. HubSpot and others have certainly uh, been at the forefront of. Um, that that kind of tends to look at our digital uh, universe at the very least through this funnel lens. I said, so I, I would say it's it, it kind of popularized at the very least by SaaS providers, wouldn't you say? You know, I I would say that it's in my experience. I think it's gotten popularized by people that really really like marketing phraseology, uh, people that like acronyms in marketing, like. You ever heard tofu, mofu, bofu mm -hmm. content? Yeah, right. I, I think it's just gotten popularized by people that like to use marketing buzzwords and sound like they know what they're talking about in meetings. That's as far as I've gotten. Well, yeah, I mean, those may be a lot of the same people. <laughs> those people may indeed be SaaS marketers, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, true. Could be. <laughs> I don't know. But um, regardless of where it started, I think um, uh, it's led us to a variety of assumptions and habits and behaviors that are kind of aren't helpful for a large number of marketers, particularly um, uh, the, the marketers that I work with uh, very often that are that find themselves in, um, in in a complex B2B sales environment, sales cycles that are maybe 18 to 24 months long, and they don't live in a world where they're looking to add 50 or 100,000 or 200,000 new customers. They live in a world where they look to add 30 or 100, you know, 
Um, right. For you know, I have one one customer is a multi you know it's you know three hundred million dollar a year uh, manufacturer. They have like twenty clients. Um, they you know the funnel isn't a particularly useful framing for their marketing world at all. Mm. Okay, so how would you how would you frame it? Well. Um, well, let's just talk about really what, what's the problems with it. Then maybe we can jointly come up with how we can frame it. Because i got to tell you, I haven't been able to come up with another object that I would <laughs> to help really drive this home. So I think we, we just need that. shapes in our brain. I think we just need things to – really, I think we're such a visual creatures. We need, we need know, an actual we need, shape. We need alternative. And I'm just telling you, Jeff, I haven't come up with it yet. But maybe we will at the end of this episode and people will be able to kind of hear it in real time. That would be exciting. Francis suggested a rhombus at one point, I think. So I don't know. We'll we'll get back around to it. Um, but basically, the, you know, the 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 one of the biggest issues with it is that it kind of leads us to this kind of myth, if you will, of this unlimited top of funnel. This this notion that you can just add another tactic to the marketing mix uh, to tr- attract some more traffic into the top of funnel and then extract money out of the bottom and. Uh, and, and again, that just doesn't fit a world where the potential market for your services is somewhat finite. Um, you know, if you sell something to car manufacturers, well, there's only so many car manufacturers in the world that can possibly buy from you. Just makes sense, right? Yeah. It, well, yeah, it does make sense. I mean, there's only so many people on the planet. There's only so much interest in specific areas. How would you calculate what your total addressable market would be. What, how do you calculate the top of funnel in a realistic way? Well, it'd be very customer or client dependent, wouldn't you think? I mean, it'd be very industry dependent. Um, uh, but I mean, your, your total addressable market would just change depending on, um, uh, depending on industry. But one thing we know is that when you're talking about a B2B versus a B2C context, there's a real big shift there very often. Mm-hmm. So if you were to take a, if you were to take a client, we'll talk about your client, your wine client, and they want to know what the top it's of the funnel. Back to a consumer example. So now we're going to mess up our listeners entirely. But I'll try to stick with. Uh, <laughs> well, you can you pick a, pick any client you want. I, I think it's good to use an, an actual example here. Um, how would you go about having a discussion with them in identifying and, and calculating? what their top of funnel looks like. Like how, how would you actually address that or can you even address that? Uh, sure. So like, so for instance, um, uh, one of the clients we work with, they make uh, flexible packaging and they primarily make flexible packaging for pet food manufacturers and for frozen food manufacturers. So those are the two verticals that they specialize in. Um, uh, using you know, tools like uh, you know, Zoom Info and other database tools, it's easy to to um, do company searches for uh, pet food manufacturers within North America that are within the uh, snack bracket, if you will, that they typically service. You know, they know that that where they where they play based upon their size and the amount of orders that they can kind of fulfill and what kind of partner that they can be same would be for the frozen food business and there's a finite number of those people right i would assume so yeah Yeah. i mean there's only Um, so many people out there with a factory to put like frozen peas in a bag right yeah (laughs) yeah exactly so so i'm just trying to visualize what this would look like so you would actually use a third-party tool and you would figure out the number of companies and the number of employees per company. And with that, you could roughly calculate the size of well, the Well, once you know the number of companies that you're, that you're roughly dealing with and you know the average size of the buying committees that you're typically encountering, you don't even need to worry necessarily so much about the total mm-hmm. number of employees. Um, you know, in order to get to your meaningful marketing audience, I mean, that's where we're getting to is the, the Kind of take your average buying committee size, times it by the number of companies that you've been able to find that t- fit your target client profile, and now all of a sudden that's what you're talking about. But that's a long ways away from talking about, hey, boss, our organic search went up 5% last month, or organic search traffic. Mm-hmm. Like in this instance, what becomes a lot more important is how many of these uh, uh, target accounts have we actually been able to engage with our digital presence? Mm, okay. All right. So I've, I've 
stopped you long enough. Please keep keep going. Um, well, I don't feel like it stopped me at all there, to be honest. I feel like I was running on my mouth incessantly. <laughs> um, but <laughs> that's fine. Um, now you're good. So, so yeah. Uh, so, again, I can manifest itself in people um, uh, employing kind of misdirected marketing tactics like they – uh, go down this uh, social media initiative or something of the sort to try to attract people that aren't even it's just it's just kind of like a square peg round hole and it's not focused in any way shape or form on the people that they're actually like the target account that they actually need to bring into their digital universe and it changed and, and it and they uh, then report on their activities in in misguided ways as well they look at these vanity metrics and things of that nature that don't actually really mean anything so you often get a, a situation where the marketers uh crowing about these advancements that they're seeing in their google analytics and the business owners are kind of sitting there thinking well we're not really seeing any kind of suit of the pants difference from all of this yeah i mean that's i think that's pretty common i think that's pretty common across the board with a lot of digital marketing agencies as a matter of fact digital marketing agencies um social media agencies i mean you can you can pump up any number. Anybody that's clever with statistics can pump up any number in a way that's still truthful, but really doesn't have any impact on the bottom line. So I, I would agree with you. And this, and this is coming from a guy that I specialize in SEO in my, my entire career. And I fully believe in it. And I also believe that it is a pretty bad way to calculate the addressable market and what kind of potential ROI you could you could see without knowing anything about the real audience. Well, now that we're in violent agreement, we can't, we're not going to make a decent episode at all. This is going to be another lackluster uh, edition of above the fold. Another one. <laughs> well, we wouldn't want to surprise our listeners with anything new. No, we wouldn't want to surprise them with quality content here. At yeah, all. yeah, right. Definitely not. Okay. So if, if we've got, if we do have a, a total addressable market that you can bring your client, you can say, this is, Probably what you're looking at, X number of companies um, with X buying, with Y buying power. Um, where do you go from there? Let's keep fixing this thing. Yeah. So so then we then we can have an intelligent conversation and come up with how are we actually going to measure our digital uh, our, our digital efforts at the uh, at uh, in terms of that uh, at that attraction end of uh, uh, of the work. Now, at, once we move beyond. Um, getting proper measures and folks around how we're trying to attract people to uh, whatever it is we're creating. Um, once we actually convert them, once we actually know who they are, we bring them into our, our universe. It's interesting that the funnel kind of forces us into some, I think, uh, further flawed kind of um, uh, business processes, if you will, where we, uh, I, this is where I, 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 I often say that Bant is bunk. Like leads us to this notion of bant qualification. So often the next thing that's uh, once we get a web lead in the traditional funnel methodology, we look to see if they have budget authority, uh, timeline, et cetera. So um, and and use that in order to determine if we move somebody from a marketing qualified lead to a sales qualified lead. That whole notion of the funnel and moving people down it. Um, and that again, if you if you think about that the example that I just used in a in the example of a frozen food manufacturer or a, a pet food uh, manufacturer who's looking to package their products, well, they have a packaging uh, requirement uh, perpetually. Um, there's an opportunity that exists there perpetually for that business. They may not be in a buying cycle at that time or what have you, but the funnel thinking kind of only engages our salespeople often once they're at a point when they are of very little influence in the buying process. Um, and I think if we can begin to think about leads differently and not be so worried about a BANT qualification before we engage sales, if we can think about how we can engage sales earlier in this relationship building process, we're moving more towards a model that I think is helpful for many B2B marketers. So how do you, maybe not quite, I've got a couple challenges on that. How do you engage the sales team earlier on and make good use of their time? Because I, I know any time that I've sent leads 
that are not ready to sales team. Anytime I'm using any of their time to engage with leads that are not yet ready or not yet qualified, um, then their opportunity cost will cost the company. Spent following up. Assuming that that time can be spent following up with leads that are already um, in need of nurture, that already have some interest, that need a little bit something extra to kick them over. Whereas if we're working leads that aren't quite ready, then they could be completely wasting their time. Yeah, I mean, you're really talking about a situation where you're sending over a bunch of what end up being unqualified uh, MQLs uh, or uh, that should have never been made SQLs mm-hmm. in your and basically the salesperson's thinking that they're in the mode to always be closing and you're sending the people that aren't ready to close. That's, that's obviously not ideal. That's not, I'm so I'm not suggesting that we, uh, yeah, so I'm not suggesting we send salespeople leads that aren't ready to, um, uh, to engage in a sales process and try to have them engage them in the sales process. What I'm saying is I think at least a percentage of salespeople's time, uh, would be uh, worthwhile being spent on more marketing style functions. Uh, frankly, doing what we're doing right now, being a podcast host, as an example, uh, and collaboratively creating content with their target clients um, at a time when those target clients may not even be in a market to buy their services or their product. Um, that's a that that's a, um, a a useful way, but it's not a it's not a it's not the salesperson isn't engaged in closing at that time. So I, I think the the call is for salespeople to be more in, at least more integrated into the marketing function. So what would what would that look like in practice? I, I kind of get it in theory, but what would that actually look like in practice? Well, I think there's a there's a lot of different ways that you could uh, go about this. I mean, tactically, if you want, again, we just gave a podcast example. So let's say you take. Uh, um, uh, to uh, sales engineers or what have you, and to give them a podcast where um, it, you actively go out and and uh, 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 solicit guests from target client organizations, and those sales engineers work through um, kind of various challenges in 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 whatever category that we're talking about, um, and um, and uh, really just engage in con- what, what often is considered content networking. I think that's that's an easy example to imagine for podcast listeners. They can probably see, imagine what that would look like. Another way to, you know, that I've seen that's been successful in doing this is uh, creating um, uh, panels, uh, exchanges um, where um, you can put a, a sales uh, person can be kind of positioned in a thought leadership role as a host of uh, uh, of 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 this type of thing, um, and they can just essentially facilitate a conversation amongst a number of target client organizations where they're talking about a, a common issue or challenge of industry focus. So I've seen that work pretty successfully as well. Mm-hmm. I think there might be some some old school thought processes that are keeping this thing keeping this structure intact. There's like an optics type of thing. Whereas if they're not on the phone, it doesn't seem that they're being productive. You know what I mean? Like they could be doing the things that you're talking about now and and it could result in more sales in a way that's, that's not traditional that you would expect out of a, out of a BDE or BDR. Um, but I, I feel like there's this old belief that still hangs around that unless you're on the phone doing what you would typically expect out of a salesperson, then you're not working hard. Um, uh, you know, maybe that exists. I think there's just as many organizations out there where um, you have very high-priced salespeople who are not remotely being um, activity managed to that extent. You know, nobody's looking over their shoulder to see if they're on the phone or not or how many calls they're making in the run of a week. Um uh, and I, I think oftentimes there's very expensive talent sitting out there in organizations being underutilized. Mm. Yeah, that's that's probably fair. And they're, they're um, often okay. engaging in de- they're being engaged in deals at a time when they c- can only influence them marginally. You know, like once an RFP has been uh, written and put out to market or or what have you, and that's a very you're very far down the, the buying process at that point, and there's very limited opportunity to impact it. 
it often right. a, a, a decision based around price. Um, you know, the, the real leverage is when you can engage earlier and help frame up what that procurement actually looks like. And the, again, if you can frame the frame it before it happens, um, you're going to have a better chance of winning. Getting back to my earlier obsession. Mm. So a lot of this has been revolving around better utilizing the sales team and reframing the way that we look at their contribution towards thing. What about the marketing side? Are we looking at things the wrong way when we're looking at this, this quote unquote funnel or whatever shape we end up with? Well, we are when we, uh, we are when we do things like, um, uh, do kind of very, uh, superficial keyword research and find a, uh, a keyword cluster that we want to, we, we think we want to rank for and we start writing blog posts uh, for these uh, mm-hmm. topics that are just kind of random in nature that are somewhat associated with our category. And um, we think if we just gain some random organic search traffic around it, that it's, that that's kind of uh, success for our content marketing effort as an example. I mean, I think that that's just all kind of contrary to where that effort ought to be focused for many um, B2B marketers, which is to say you ought to be making it a lot more account-based uh, and thinking about that content creation in a much more uh, strategic way and probably a lot less of a throwaway kind of, you know, 12 blog posts a month kind of approach or whatever it is, you know, that kind of content hamster wheel. Yeah. Well, I think part of that, and and this is something that I talked about in a previous podcast was that there's a misalignment of metrics and incentives, right? Because if you talk about like a strictly in the more siloed you get, the worse it gets. Like if you're talking about strictly an SEO team, they're going to get rewarded for bringing in traffic. Like you're talking about, they're going to bring, they might target some vague keyword that has no buyer, no commercial intent behind it. And their organic traffic goes up 25%. You report a bunch of green numbers and you look good, right? You're going to get the next contract. You're going to get the rate. You're going to get whatever whatever it is that you're looking for. Um, but in reality, that is just a vanity metric. Um, take it one step further. You got the inbound marketing team. All right, those leads or those ex- that extra organic traffic brought in a few extra leads, right? So your organic uh, leads went up 50%. Their numbers go up. They all get raises. This gets down to the sales team. You know exactly where I'm going, right? These leads are shit. And then the sales team can't do anything with them. And then sure enough, you've got a full misalignment of incentives. Hard to argue there. I think that's the state of affairs for most people. And then they find themselves too. You find this in such, I was talking to a a senior uh, marketing VP um, just three weeks ago, four weeks ago in, in Chicago. And he told me, that um, he, he was the, the the notion of the funnel being flawed was resonating with him, and he said, um, "Not nothing could be um, more truthful than that." He, he was when I look at two percent of my MQLs turning into qualified sales opportunities. Clearly, funnel thinking isn't helpful, right? Like somebody's being missing. Like you say, they have this team that's being incented to create MQLs that are just. You know, it's not trend like the when the rubber meets the road, they're just not particularly useful. Yeah. Well, the way I see it here, when I visualize how a website works, why a website exists, you've got two sides of the house and you need both sides of the house to, to keep the whole thing standing. One side of the house is you've got all of your your product pages, your home page, all of these things that should be driving a lot of commercial intent traffic. They should be targeting keywords that will drive queries that rank high for uh, for queries that uh, have people that have an intent to buy whatever services or products that you have. These, you should do everything in your power to have a good um, user experience and conversion rate optimization so you can convert as many of those as you can because they're shopping. They're using shopping behavior. They're using shopping types of terms. So from an SEO standpoint, you should be driving as much of that traffic as possible to the site and then converting them as much as possible and then qualifying them over to your sales team based on your track record, what's a what's a good lead, what's a bad lead, passing them on to the sales team. So that's the one half. And I think that's actually the easy half. And the other half, I believe, is the, the nurture side. That's why a blog exists for the most part. Um, these are your inherently driving leads that have 
not much interest. They don't have much buyer intent. They're looking to learn things. They're looking to explore new concepts, to compare products, those kind of things. And that gives you an opportunity to drive a ton of traffic and backlinks to your site, which will in turn boost up your product pages. But at the same time, you're going to be getting the majority of your traffic through blogs if you're doing that properly. Um, and that gives you an opportunity to nurture these types of leads, get them onto your um, uh, your push notifications, get them onto your newsletter, get them to download your content, and then nurture them through email until they are ready, if they are ever ready to become uh, customers. And then when they are ready to be customers, you go through the same process. So the way I see it is that you've just basically got two different audiences, one that's ready and one that's not ready. And then taking both of those when they are ready and qualifying them based on past experience of your company, you know, what works and what doesn't work, and then passing them on to the sales team. So I, I figure with, with that type of mentality, you, you shouldn't be able to go wrong because you're all tracking towards the same exact thing, right? Which is bring in as many as you can and then filter them down into what you know works for your organization and then pass those along to the sales team. Yeah. What do we, so it all sounds great in theory, but let's just kind of, um, and frankly can work pretty well in practice in some categories, but I think there, there are a few, um, challenges with, um, with, with how that actually comes to life. Um, uh, okay. So what, what, what the problem is, is we have a lot of other things that are at play where, um, uh, you know, there's a, there's a move afoot now to you know, for, for web users are getting less and less likely to convert early on in their sales discovery process. Mm-hmm. Um, there's even a move to on gate a lot of that content, um, which is actually taking those leads and taking them out of the ability to be nurtured, um, in an ear- early on in a sales process. So, and, and so very often what we find is that by the time the salespeople get engaged in the format that you just in- indicated, um, uh, they're they're being engaged at a point of of minimum utility, um, so that's where I think that that kind of thinking is kind of leading us to some marketing decisions that are maybe less helpful. Do you see what I mean? I don't think I quite follow. Well, if we're only engaging our salespeople, so you just said, okay, well, we're going to be able to nurture these leads, and then once they're sales ready, then well, then we can move them to sales. Well, I just mm-hmm. mentioned that well, they're going to be harder and harder to find and nurture because more and more of that content is going to be expected to be ungated and outside of um, mm-hmm. the, the point of contact capture. Um, so then, if we're only engaging salespeople when a prospective B two B buyer is eighty percent of the way down their buying journey. Then they can't. Then the ability to impact that purchase is necessarily less than if you can engage them when they're at ten percent of the way down that buying journey, or maybe they haven't even started in it yet. So mm, in, okay, so that's yeah, where I, in the beginning, in, in particularly in complex B two B selling environments, where the expectation of these salespeople is to be more and more um, technical in nature. I mean, you have. Um, um, uh, the old days where the salespeople could just come in and kind of grab and grin and and press the flesh and 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 seal the deal and off they go. That that's not <laughs> the world anymore. There, um, yeah. But but we need to take that sales talent and and that that deep technical expertise and find ways to showcase them through our marketing efforts earlier, so that we capture those prospective buyers earlier in their uh, buying journey. Well, that actually does make a lot of sense to me because I know for our clients that we get in the door, especially in this field, in digital marketing, content marketing, there's an expectation that we have done a lot of research into their, like we are ready for specific, to show them specific examples to their industry that we've done background research on their website, that we're coming with recommendations, that we've done some competitive research um, all of that stuff is there, and that's all coming from the sales side. That's not expected of, of marketing, at least in, not in any organization that I've worked with. Marketing is creating these things. So they're, they're really expecting that these sales folks are ready with this type of stuff. And that, and that kind of does lead into sales becoming involved more early in the process. Like, for instance, like you're, you're talking um, about. Yeah, I have a, 
a client that uh, makes uh, fire suppression systems for buildings. So if you're making you know, building and designing and making the parts for uh, sprinkler systems, fire suppression systems for building, um, uh, you know, ha- if you're trying to advance that category, uh, if you're trying to introduce new ways of uh, dealing with these complex uh, problems in the built environment, and you're trying to um, uh, shift um, procurement dynamics to um, match uh, your unique um, uh, 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 value proposition that you bring as a company and that that all of that is 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 uh, better done by not by hiding your talent and having your salespeople only your highly technical salespeople only be engaged um after somebody's ready with an rfp for a new sprinkler system for their for their complex you actually need to bring that talent earlier to bear in a, a kind of more learning environment where you can help shape that discussion Mm, yeah, I, I completely agree with that, and that that completely resonates with all of all of the inbound leads that we're getting now. And it's it's just becoming exponentially more expected. It seems like over the years. Before it was when I first got into this industry, it was send over some examples of what you do. It doesn't even have to match the industry. Um, it was show over some uh, send over some uh, some case studies of successes that you've had. It's a couple of testimonials, and that's that's good. And now it's actually, not only is it that the sales team needs to be involved much earlier in the process, but actually the people that are going to be delivering the product are being expected at least half the time uh, when we're working with, when we're working with prospects. Meaning that like, if we're going to be creating blog content for a prospect that's come in the door, say they came in through one of our product landing pages and they, they converted on the page and just decided they wanted to speak with us. They'll come in on the first call asking to talk to the strategist that's going to be on the account and the actual writer that's going to be on the account. You know, so it's it's not just the sales team. It's I want to meet everybody on the team and I want to know like what do they have to contribute to this this conversation. Uh yeah, it's a dog eat dog world out there, Jeff. What do you want me to tell you? I don't know, man. I don't know. I thought I thought you were gonna give me a new shape. I thought you were gonna give me answers to this thing, and and now you just you just tell me. I've got to deal with it. Yeah, I wish I could come up with this shape. I, I I was working on this kind of diamond model, where I was working through this notion of the buyer being um, mm. at a period of a divergence in their buying process, and then converging on an options, et cetera. It just was a mess. That's so, too complicated. Um, yeah, yeah, we're gonna lose yeah, people that one. It's not good. <laughs> and um, I, I know that like um, people have kind of associated it some way or asked if there's parallels with um, Rand Fishkin's notion of flywheel or what have you, but that's on a kind of completely different notion entirely. I don't see a lot of parallels there. Yeah, the flywheel is a little bit more strictly for digital marketing. It seems that's that kind of. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we have our own in in marketing. We have our own funnel, right? And I think that's part of the problem is we think of it as our own funnel. Once it gets to the bottom of the funnel, you're just like, okay, you sell it, right? And that doesn't really work that way. Yeah, like we just yeah. About- so we we can agree that the flywheel can't be used as the visual model for for this because well, it's already being used from some on a number of other planes anyway. So agreed. We just, uh, so now this is our charge. We need to come up with something that works, and um, we only have like a few minutes left, <laughs> and um, people are watching it crash and burn as we speak. <laughs> hey, like I said, it's it's not anything that they're not used to. If we came up with some sort of resolution on this thing, we might lose our jobs. We might lose the podcast altogether. It's kind of like, it's just like watching a train wreck happen over and over again. And when the train wreck doesn't happen, everybody turns it off. I like the lack of pressure. <laughs> hey, but you ha- you helped turn this into a, a better train wreck than it usually is. <laughs> well, I, think, I don't know. I mean, I think the pipeline model is somewhat, it's weird because like a, a funnel necessarily because there's, various conversion points throughout and it narrows as it goes down it kind of almost suggests in some ways that we ignore people that don't kind of go along to the next stage i know we don't do that in 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 practice with lead nurturing etc we're not actually advocating that they get ignored even when we're looking at the funnel but um uh, overall it, it seems to in some some way uh imply that um 
not everybody stays along for the ride. And part of, I think, what we're trying to communicate here is that understanding your total addressable universe and being able to wrap your arms around that that network or that big messy matrix of of um, uh, of, 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 of possible contacts and connections is kind of a better lens to think it through. But I don't know what that model looks like, Jeff. Well, here's the problem. I mean, you're always going to be talking about more people at the top than people at the bottom, right? Because inherently, you're going to have people that are interested at the top and they're not going to convert. You're only going to convert a portion of them. So it's always going to look like that top-heavy model where there's more at the top and more at the bottom. So there's going to have to be a way to reframe it so you ignore that as an important thing. Almost like that should be an assumed, that should be an assumed thing. Right. And we talk about this funnel like it's some something revolutionary and something that we need to put so much thought into. But obviously, not everybody at the top is going to the bottom. And it's not going to start with less people at the top and more people at the bottom. It just doesn't work that way. So maybe we should just assume that the funnel is just a natural course of things and just move on from there and start thinking in a different way. All right. Are you going to present the solution now or are we done? No, that's it. That's all I got. I'm just ranting again. I told you, I don't come up with ideas on it. I don't come up with solutions here. We just rant about ideas. I appreciate that. <laughs> and, and it has been a great rant. Thank you so much for joining us today, Carmen. Uh, where would you like to send our guests? Uh, Jeff, look, um, the guests are welcome to come on over to kulapartners.com. That's K-U-L-A partners.com and uh, meet the team and uh, see what we're up to. And you can find lots of links to the cooler ring there uh, as well. And then um, check out some of our podcast episodes where we tell the stories of manufacturing marketers and uh, the digital transformations that are underway therein. And say the name of the podcast again. The cooler ring. The cooler ring. Okay, cool. And that can be found on all the major platforms. It can indeed. Awesome. Cool. Widely distributed for your uh, listening enjoyment. Excellent. We will send those links out in the show notes uh, to follow. And for now, thank you very much for joining Above the Fold. Carmen, thank you very much for being here and helping us rage out on the funnel and almost come up with a solution. I feel like we're almost there. You know, Jeff, uh, look, once we come up with this final uh, the, the kind of the model to be, we can maybe record another episode and uh, tie it all together for our listeners. <laughs> you got it, man. Come up with a new shape. We've got a great graphic design team. We'll even draw it out. Nice. It's been a pleasure. Thanks very much. We'll see you. Uh, we'll see you next time, everybody. Bye bye.